Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person who's, as I'm learning more and more about the NAFTA agreement that's being proposed and talked about, I'm getting more and more angry. I'm just, I'm, I'm just looking at this, and it just like creates this more of this visceral reaction with me. And so that's what we've been talking about all day today on this Food Freedom Radio show. We're recording it um, before Thanksgiving weekend, and you're listening to this this Thanksgiving weekend. But with us in studio is the develop is the director of development and communication for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, Josh Wise. Hi, Josh. Hi, Laura. Okay. So again, for someone who doesn't know what NAFTA is, how would you describe it? What is it? Well, the North American Free Trade Agreement is what the acronym stands for. Um, and it was uh, it came into force in 1994. It had been uh, negotiated for several years before that. And uh, a free trade agreement um, is really kind of a misleading term. Um, you know, uh, when uh, a good crosses a border, there's an opportunity to put a tax on that good. Uh, and... Uh, the, you know, called tariffs, which we're seeing, you know, the Trump administration's putting tariffs on things right now. Um, and ostensibly, a free trade agreement would say, we're going to get rid of the tariffs, and here are the terms on which we're going to do it. Now, what really happens is that free trade agreements are where all sorts of policies that affect uh, the laws in, in the uh, partner countries uh, get negotiated um, to where they're, in, in theory, operating on similar standards. Um, and what we've seen is that uh, those standards generally favor the people who are in the room negotiating the agreements, uh, which in large part are big corporations. Okay. And so joining us by phone is uh, Karen Hansen-Kuhn. She's the Director of Trade and Global Governance. So how do you look at NAFTA, uh, Karen? How would you describe NAFTA? Well, I mean, one thing to add, of course, is that Trump has uh, rebranded it, the U.S. Mexico-Canada agreement, um, but really most of us are saying this new agreement is really NAFTA 2.0 um, because it has a lot of the same problems as NAFTA. I mean, if we look at, it's had impacts on all different kinds of sectors. As Josh said, it's not only, you know, about tariffs, it's about things like rules on uh, patents for medicines, uh, what, what are the rules on seeds, you know, all kinds of different issues. And if we think about the farm sector and our food system, it has been very negative. It's hurt farmers in all three countries. It has changed uh, the default food environment, uh, particularly in Mexico, where people are eating a lot more processed foods. Obesity rates are increasing. Um, and, of course, there have been labor impacts in all three countries. So there really is a need to really change this agreement. I don't think we're there yet, though. So one of the things you said earlier is that, that this agreement's really bad for Mexico. Talk about that. Well, I think the clearest way to look at it is, is the impact on farmers in Mexico. After NAFTA came into place, U.S. corn exports to Mexico increased something like 400%. And a lot of that was corn um, that is essentially dumped. It's exported at below the cost of production. So we had all of this corn going into Mexico. Five million Mexican farmers were displaced. About three million ended up becoming contract growers on other farms, so not on their own farms anymore. Two million were driven out of agriculture altogether. Uh, so many of those 
um, migrated to cities, some came to the U.S., but they were displaced from from their lands, from their heritage. And that is something that has lasted. Karen, um, many of us, um, people had a sacred relationship with corn, especially in in Mexico. It's not just a commodity, but it is something that nourishes us and we nourish it. So there's there's this, the community connections with corn have been disrupted by NAFTA. I think that's true. And of course, there's also a lot of pressure under NAFTA and uh, from corporations generally to import uh, GMO corn. There is a huge campaign in Mexico, sin maíz, no hay país, without corn, no country, that is about reestablishing those contacts, about protecting um, this piece of their heritage, and that's still hugely important there. And the in- incoming Mexican Mexico president uh, has got ideas on regenerating the Mexican um, a- a- agriculture. You were telling me about that too, Josh. Uh, yeah, actually, I will. Def- I'll defer to Karen on okay. that one because she really knows what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is really exciting. So they have this progressive new government coming in in Mexico during the elections. About 100 farm organizations came together with their own plan on how to restore Mexican agriculture, particularly farming by small-scale farmers. He agreed to support that. They agreed to help bring in votes, which they did. And now they are getting ready to launch a new program to restore food self-sufficiency in corn, wheat, rice, and beans in Mexico. So this is a program, the the idea is to target farmers, for the most part, really small-scale farmers, those with less than five hectares, so that's about 20-some acres, I think. They will get floor prices, um, so minimum guaranteed prices for their production. They'll get help with marketing, uh, help with fertilizers, and there is a plan to move forward. But it's a really exciting plan, and the farmers' uh, organizations I met with uh, they are coming together weekly to make sure this happens. The person who is leading the initiative, the new undersecretary for food self-sufficiency, Victor Suarez, uh, is really ready to hit the ground running. Um, it was exciting to be there, you know, in, a, in such a positive environment. Uh, Karen, that is exciting. I want to make sure we can get back to it. So Karen is the Director of Trade and Global Governance for IADP. And also on the phone with us is the Senior Policy Analyst, Dr. Steve Supan. Um, Supan. Um, hi, Steve. Hi, Laura. Okay. So tell us your perspective of what IATP is, or what IATP. Well, okay, start there. What is, what's your perspective? You've been with IATP for a long time. Tell us about the history of IATP. Well, one of the things that ITP uh, has tried to do is to uh, educate farm organizations, educate other governments, uh, educate other non-governmental organizations about the impact that trade policy has on a, a wide, wide range of U.S. domestic policies or domestic policies in any country. Um, one of the uh, ways that um, the Reagan administration decided that it would um, overcome resistance to making radical changes to you know, U.S. environmental, food safety, worker protection policy was to introduce disciplines on governments through trade policy. And so, uh, you know, IATP began to investigate 
of those issues. And uh, to a considerable extent, we're still doing that kind of investigation today. Okay, so how would you describe uh, the NAFTA? Well, I mean, you've got uh, 30 chapters, uh, plus annexes, plus side letters. So it's, uh, you know, it's a few thousand pages of highly, um, you know, complex text uh, that has been negotiated about a lot of it, most of it about public protections. Uh, Back in the day when trade uh, agreements largely concerned uh, tariffs and tariff rate quotas, um, you could say, well, this is basically a commercial agreement in which commercial entities only should be involved. But now it's largely an agreement about uh, public policy and the public is excluded from the, um, from the negotiation. So, so, so that's sort of the it? overall um, situation so, of um, U.S. trade policy. Okay, so Josh, what does this mean, the public is excluded? And a big complex, this is a thousand-page document, the public's excluded. What does that mean? Right. Um, So the U.S. trade representative, the person who's in charge of negotiating agreements, um, basically has diplomatic status. And what that allows them to do, um, I guess they still have to pay parking tickets now. Uh, They changed that rule. But they, they have the ability to classify negotiations. And so that means that the public and even members of Congress are not allowed in the room to see what the, you know, government bureaucrats are negotiating on behalf of the American people. Um... The way to see the text is that you become what's called a cleared advisor. Um, and basically, you, you become a cleared advisor, and that allows you to see the negotiating text on one of several areas. Um, th- right now, um, or at least the last time I was aware of the uh, ratios, there were about 600 cleared advisors. Over 90% of them represented corporate and business interests. Um, so really what you have is the lobbyists writing the laws behind closed doors. And, um, you know, that that was the case uh, in the Obama administration. It was the case in the George W. Bush administration. It was the case uh, in the Clinton administration going back and back and back. Um, the reality is that the Trump administration has set a whole new standard for uh, secrecy. They're kind of... Uh, not really even consulting with the cleared advisors from my understanding at this point. So it's it's quite bad. It's quite bad. Okay, so uh, uh, how does the rebranded NAFTA 2, 2.0, NAFTA 2.0, how does that differ from the, the NAFTA plan? Uh, well, I think uh, there... I'll, go ahead, Steve. Do you want to take it, Josh? Um, okay. Well, I'll just... I'll say there, you know, I think there are basically um, three things. Um, one is uh, m- maybe some of your listeners are familiar with what's called, with what's called investor state dispute settlements. Um, they reformed those questionable. Um, the second is uh, they put labor and environmental standards into the text. Um, again, the enforceability is pretty questionable on that. And third, they imported a lot of really bad language from agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, agreements that have succeeded NAFTA. Okay, we're going to be taking a break, so uh, we're going to continue our conversations with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy on NAFTA. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.
the Seeds of Change. I'm Laura Headline, and we're talking all things NAFTA. In studio with us is Josh Wise. He's the Director of Development and Communication for the Agriculture and Trade Policy. And also joining us by phone is Dr. Steve Sapan. He's a Senior Policy Analyst. And Karen Hansen-Koo, she's the Director of Trade and Global Governance. So, Josh, tell us again about the timeline for NAFTA 2.0. Well, the uh, text was published um, at the end of September. Uh, the heads of state will be signing the agreement um, by the end of November, and they're doing that on purpose so that the uh, outgoing Mexican president, uh, Peña Nieto, is the one who ends up signing it. Uh, But then, um, basically, it will sit there until uh, they they figure out whether or not they have the votes legislatively to get the agreement enacted. And this is operating under what's called fast-track procedure, should we go into the details of that right now? Oh, why not? <laughs> um, uh, Karen and Steve, maybe you can add to this. But basically, um, when uh, Fast Track is its own piece of legislation that uh, overrides normal treaty-making policy in the United States. Um, and basically, Congress abdicates its authority uh, to oversee the Commerce Clause uh, and says, executive branch, branch, you go ahead and do that. And whatever you submit to us, we guarantee a vote within 90 days of submission with no uh, amendments and with limited debate. Right. Um, and so uh, normally a treaty would need two-thirds of Senate approval. This, In this case, it's 50% oh, plus fi- one of the House 50, and the Senate. Uh, it needs 50% of the House as well. That's correct. Yep. Okay. So it, it, you know, it's very likely that incoming House Democrats will see this agreement and say, we have some problems. I, and so, Karen, also tell us, what about the people of Mexico with their new administration? Do you think that this is a done deal um, for Mexico? Well, it's a good question. I mean, one thing I was really surprised to learn when I was there is that uh, they still don't have text available in Spanish. So the new <laughs> Senate there is holding hearings, you know, but based on what they know of what's there in English. Their own government has only published a 40-page summary of the PR statement of some highlights. Um, So the groups we were working with were very eager to get more analysis from the U.S. So in Mexico, it's considered a treaty, and it will be voted by the Senate. Um, And so they have started the hearing process. I think you know, it's, it's a tricky situation because the, the progressive new government that's coming in has these ambitious programs, not just for agriculture, but for labor reforms for different sectors. And so people are, you know, worried about upsetting things. It seems like, I don't know, I'm worried that there won't be a full enough debate in Mexico um, because people are focused on other things. It's, it's kind of hard. Right. Is, um, and so, uh, Steve Supan, what about Canada? Do you think it's um, uh, the Canadians will welcome this proposal? What do you think? Uh, well, it's, it's pretty controversial uh, in Canada. Uh, we focused a lot on the, um, uh, the damage done to dairy supply, poultry supply management in Canada because that supply management program uh, has uh, supported uh, Canadian dairy and poultry farmers very well, and the United States does not have a supply management program, and our dairy farmers are going out of business uh, almost on a daily basis because we have such a vast oversupply of dairy products, beginning with raw milk. 
So what what does this new what does the new program do with the dairy uh, supply? Well, this is going to get pretty you know pretty complicated. Part of it concerns uh, you know increasing uh, market access for U.S. dairy products. Uh, which, you know, benefit from far below cost production prices for raw milk. Um, that goes into, you know, yogurt and cheese and products in which, you know, dried dairy powders and agreements and so on and so forth. It also changes uh, the classification system uh, in the tariff schedule for, uh, for dairy products. But it puts a lot of pressure on the Canadian supply management system uh, which, you know, we at IATP think the United States should be adapting because right now uh, U.S. dairy policy um, is basically something that serves very, very large processors, including those processors who routinely uh, uh, fix prices without a, any U.S. government intervention uh, to prevent that. So for someone who, you know, we, we want to have a livable climate for future generation, and we know um, that uh, carbon farming or, or small-scale doing smart things climate-wise um, can be part of the climate change, part of the solution, and we want uh, livable wages um, in our farming system. Um, is NAFTA a good document to achieve these types of outcomes? I'll let everyone answer. Well, unfortunately, the person who's written most about this at ITP, uh, Ben Williston, is a, a, at a meeting um, about animal agriculture, and, and uh, he wrote our analysis of uh, NAFTA and uh, climate change, and unfortunately, uh, the new NAFTA uh, expands um, opportunities and market access for fossil fuels. Um, and uh, this is going to impact all of the uh, the state programs, including that of our home state here in Minnesota, where we have uh, a, a pretty aggressive, a relatively aggressive uh, renewable energy policy that is becoming you know pretty successful commercially. So, and here's so, a, here's a know. sentence from what Ben wrote. Um, so, mm -hmm. through legally binding rules, and that's what this is about: legally binding rules. These deals have favored high greenhouse gas emitting and extractive industries like energy and agriculture. So, Josh, how does that work? I mean, how do I get my head around that? Um, you know, I think the best way to think about it is that um, it encourages, you know, when you're encouraging uh, trade flows at the highest volume possible, you're uh, de facto benefiting the largest producers. Uh, and the largest producers are doing so in what they would call the most efficient economic terms, but that means they're putting the most externalities out onto the public, whether that's environmental or labor protections or uh, any of that. And so when you have an agreement that has, like you said, legally binding rules that make it very hard for governments to address those externalities, um, it's pretty clear that you're going to end up uh, fueling something like climate change. So these legally binding rules, um, uh, Steve, talk to us about how how they how they add to climate change. And well, I think if, you know you have um, uh, in, in you know in the agriculture sector uh, a, a legal support system for maximizing you know exports, and uh, this has uh, you know, a, a 
an impact on the ability of the soil uh, to retain carbon. It certainly will um, increase uh, greenhouse gases uh, such as methane, uh, such as nitrous oxide, which, which results from uh, over-fertilization, which is a huge problem when you are a farmer trying to maximize production in order to be able to get farm bill subsidies to keep your your head above water right. financially. Right, so Steve, I'm going to take a break um, and we're going to come back. We'll talk more about um, NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0. We're talking with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. NAFTA, UFTA, NAFTA. <laughs> Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. We're talking with the um, Institute on Agriculture and Trade Policy, all things about NAFTA 2.0. And um, on the breaks, we're talking about the difference between the NAFTA proposal that is, is, uh, that is now, and, and we want to talk about how does that impact the biotechnology. Steve, you had some comments on that? Well, one of the things that is not has not been commented uh, except by ITP is that um, this first it's the first uh, uh, section of a trade agreement specifically note, uh, devoted to agricultural biotechnology. There was a there was a section or an article I should say in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but uh, you know the United States withdrew from that, so it doesn't apply to us. But this is a more extensive. Um, uh, section of the agriculture chapter. And the first thing to note about it, and it's very important, is that uh, it applies to all agricultural goods in the World Customs Union system of of, 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 of product description. So this would be all, you know, grains, oil seeds, fruits, vegetables, live animals, uh, fish, fish products, and so on and so forth. So it's a much wider application of so, uh, so basically, does this give uh, modified products? So basically, if if it's uh, if it's passed, would this give the large financial interest the um, legal binding authority to do with other life whatever they think they can make money off of? Is that basically? I mean, it's just it's it just opens the road completely for biotech. Well, right now, the United States does not regulate uh, biotechnology products. They have a voluntary consultation process, which almost invariably results in uh, either the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the Food and Drug Administration or the Environmental Protection Agency saying, we don't have any problems with this. But uh, what the agencies are reviewing are the documents and the data that the companies wish to presented them. And when we tried to, uh, you know, get uh, a example or, you know, documents uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, these documents are redacted at least to you know, 80%, sometimes more. So you really can't do a peer review of the science that the companies are presenting to the agencies. Well, I know with the Monsanto case and the Johnson case, um, that law firm put out a lot of documents behind Roundup, and there's been a lot of evidence that that's not safe for people. But how do we make this connection between GMOs and NAFTA? Well, I think with, you know, I mean, when, when you look at, at uh, uh, this new, you know, new 
section. I mean, first it's, it's, uh, it's saying, well, you, the importing country, uh, must import what is called a low-level presence occurrence of products that have not been approved for import in your country. And that's, that's sort of the camel's nose under the tent uh, because, uh, you know, there are currently low-level presence uh, agreements in Europe, and they allow 0.9% of a so, grain or oil I'm sorry. shipment. I, I, I'm having a little trouble. I'm going to stop you for a second, Steve, because I'm, I'm kind of like, what do you mean? Josh, can you explain that? What is a low level? What does that mean? Uh, well, essentially what it means is that uh, even if a substance is, you know, um, regulated in one country, uh, that if it's below a certain threshold, they have to let it in. Uh, okay, so if And, if and somebody... it basically overrides domestic overrides. policy. Okay, yeah. so now, Karen, you come in here and say, so the people in Mexico are saying, hey, we want to have a sovereign food supply, and this says, no, you have to accept GMO corn. Is, is that, am I understanding that correct, Lee? Karen? Under the tent. So you have a shipment of, say, corn going to Mexico that has some GMOs in it, but there's no, you know, it's, a level that you might call contamination, but in fact, it could be a lot bigger than that. And so they're concerned that this is going to end. There's been a lot of legal cases in Mexico to resist um, GMO corn especially, and so this will weaken that resolve. Um, they're also concerned about new rules on, on patents for seeds, that they would have to sign this new treaty that makes it impossible uh, for small-scale farmers to save and share seeds. So they're, they're concerned about these issues. And it's not there's nothing in the agreement that says you must import GMOs, but there is this chapter Steve was talking about. There are different chapters in the agreement that weaken the ability of the government to put those kinds of restrictions. Steve, did you want to say something about that? Well, it is. I mean, it's it's uh, there's a lot of of, you know, detail in this, but uh, one of the things that's so concerning about this particular chapter is that the definitions are really hazy. There's no, there's no, uh, you know, definition of what constitutes a low-level uh, presence occurrence. I mean, not, not frequency occurrence, not the, uh, the testing methodology for determining if the, uh, uh, if the GMO is, you know, authorized for import or not. And so on and so forth. And so this is basically uh, a section of the um, of the agreement that invites litigation in a lot of sort of emergency situations where um, the default will be for the Mexican government or the Canadian government uh, to accept the U.S. import because otherwise they're going to face some very big and very angry countries, plus the State Department, plus the U.S. Department uh, or the U.S. Trade Representative. So the risk associated with unauthorized but traded genetic engineering passes from the companies to the um, the chain supply to the consumers. What does that mean? Well, in the, I mean, in the uh, you know the, the the history in Mexico is one where um, you know your exporting companies like Cargill will say, "Oh, this uh, this corn never goes into." Um, into consumer food products, it just goes to cattle uh, or to pigs or to, you know, to poultry. But um, there's been widespread testing in Mexico, and uh, because yellow corn is cheaper than white corn, uh, tortilla manufacturers uh, 
the taste is terrible, the consistency is terrible, um, and you know under the current um, uncontrolled uh, food supply system, it's very likely that um, you know the the genome engineered products would enter uh, into the food system because there's simply not enough of a control system to prevent it. Yeah, Laura, I'll just add what we're really talking about here is the right to know. Um, and uh, the new agreement is a big blow to the right to know. And so when we say it's transferred to the consumer, basically what we're saying is buyer beware on the products that you're seeing on your shelves. So, okay, so if we got a right to know in Minnesota, if NAFTA is approved, it would say, uh-uh, you can't know? That would be not allowed under the system for... Well, know? it would have to be... Uh, litigated, but if you look at something like country of origin labeling, which was, you know, knowing which country your meat comes from, right. uh, the World Trade Organization, for example, found that to be a, what's called a non-tariff barrier to trade. Okay, so does this new NAFTA take away the right, of, the right to know what country my food's from? I, I think we're kind of waiting to be seen on that, and I think maybe talking about the investor state dispute settlement might be a way for okay. someone to understand why that's so complex. Okay, so who wants to talk about the inventor? Who wants to talk about that? The inventor investor state dispute. I think Karen should talk Karen. about that. I think. Okay, Karen. We were talking about it in in house, and I was saying I don't understand it, and Karen said I do understand it. So okay, so Karen, explain <laughs> this to us. Well, this is a mechanism that the first time the U.S. had it in a trade agreement was NAFTA. It gives corporations the right to sue governments over any kind of law that undermines their expected profits. Um, so under – there haven't been a lot of cases involving agriculture yet. Most of the cases have been around big-ticket items like oil and gas, um, mining, mining in different countries. But there were three cases where Mexico tried to put up some barriers to the ex to imports of high fructose corn syrup. And companies cried foul. They ended up getting $169 million in compensation. So, it's this very unfair um, situation where basically companies can bypass domestic court systems. So at the end, for example, of the whole debate around the Keystone Pipeline, here, the, when the Obama administration had put a hold on it, um, the Canadian firm that was, that was promoting this said they were going to sue for $15 billion. And then they use those threats, even if they don't get eventually get that money, it's a huge threat. And so it pressures governments to change their mind. So one thing that there is progress in this new NAFTA in that that mechanism will be taken away between Canada and the U.S. And greatly weakened between uh, the U.S. and Mexico. On the other hand, um, part of what remains, um, a lot of what remains are the, those big-ticket items still. So oil and gas, infrastructure, telecommunications would still be subject to those kinds of suits. So it's a little step forward. As Josh was mentioning before, even though there's text, there is still a lot of pressure uh, from different places to, to do better. Um, before this comes to Congress. And uh, let's talk talk about the environmental issues and environmental impacts of NAFTA 2.0. Well, some of the new things, uh, as people were talking about, are, are issues that come in from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So on the one hand, we have, as I said, with Investor State, you know, it seems great, except, you know, that these cases, big oil and gas companies will still be able 
to pressure Mexico for those kinds of changes. Uh, another change is that under current law, exports of liquefied natural gas have to go through an approval process in this country. Under, under this trade agreement, they would remove that step. So it's very likely we'd see big increases in exports of liquefied natural gas from the U.S. to Mexico, um, and that will mean more fracking in the United States. So that's a big problem. And also in the environment chapter, um, while in the labor chapter, I think people are feeling good about new labor rights that are included, in the environment chapter, it's weaker than under previous trade agreements. It references fewer international agreement, multilateral agreements on the environment, and it's not enforceable. So energy is a big concern on environment um, with this new agreement. So the report says that it undermines the Parents Climate Agreement. How does the new NAFTA or the new proposed NAFTA undermine the Parents Climate Agreement? Well, for one thing, the word climate doesn't appear anywhere in all of those thousands of pages of text. Um, so there is nothing in there that gives uh, a government the right to take certain actions to meet those commitments. And in fact, uh, when you maintain, for example, um, say the U.S. or Mexico were to decide to transition away from oil and gas, as part of meeting, say, Mexico wanted to meet those commitments, so they were going to transition away, um, they would be subject to all these lawsuits. There would be all this pressure that would keep them on the track they're on now. So there's nothing in this agreement that encourages governments uh, to move forward. And in fact, it, there a lot of different parts of the agreement are about deregulation, so creating fewer opportunities to make the changes we need to get to a different path. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking all about NAFTA 2.0. Um, and with us is Josh Wise, with the, uh, he's the Director of Communications at the Institute of Agriculture Trade Policy, Dr. S Steve Supang, a policy analyst, and Karen Hansen-Koo, Director of Trade and Global Governance. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, and we're talking about NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0. With us is Josh Wise. With um, He's the Director of uh, Communications for uh, the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, Dr. Steve Supan, a Senior Policy Analyst, and, Dr. and, and Karen Hansen-Kuhn, uh, Director of Trade and Global Governance. So, uh, Josh, tell us again about what the process is now for, for NAFTA. Right. So, uh I, I won't get back into fast track, but essentially Congress has to approve the deal in the United States. Uh, that they, includes they, the U.S. House of Representatives. That includes the House of U.S. Representatives, which uh, you know has just shifted back to Democratic control. And what we've heard from Democratic members of Congress is that they really want to put this agreement under the microscope. And if it's not good enough, uh, they want the Trump administration to go back and get a better deal. Great. Go back. So, Karen and Steve, I'm going to ask each of you, if you were talking to your local congressperson, what would you tell them about this NAFTA plan? Uh, Steve? Well, I think, you know, one way for members of Congress to look at this, and they have, I should say that during the negotiation, so that the text is presented to them as something that they cannot amend, all right? So that's already an offense to, uh, you know, to the advice and consent duty um, of the Senate. And we, you know, would say, look, 
this was negotiated in in great secrecy. And so there are a lot of provisions that affect public health, that affect the environment, that affect worker safety. And none of these can be addressed um, in this, you know, in this agreement as it stands. And here's a list of issues that we would want to see uh, uh, discussed publicly, openly, and not behind closed doors with uh, corporate advisors. Right. And Karen, what would you say to your local congressperson? I would say take the time to step back and get this right. You know, we have 20-some years' experience with an agreement that has increased corporate control over our economies. It's led to outsourcing, decreasing wages. It's hurt family farmers. So the point now is not to see if, you know, these, these changes in these current negotiations don't accept that as the only thing possible. They can send it back. They can say, you know what, this business on liquefied natural, natural gas or these provisions on agricultural biotechnology, that's not good enough. Um, and we really do need to be stepping back and thinking, where are we trying to go with this? How, how do we get to better economies? How do we get to better food systems? And what are the trade rules we need to get there? There are a lot of good proposals out there, uh, but there's certainly no need to rush through uh, approval of this agreement. And I, I love that. Uh, where do we want to go? And I, I want you to tell us again about some of the stuff going on in Mexico uh, with the new administration. And, and where would you want to see agriculture go, Karen? Well, I think what's exciting in Mexico is they understand they have this problem. And so they're not taking on all of agriculture. They're starting where things are, are most dire. Um, they're giving farmers stable prices for their, for their crops, something that U.S. farmers could really use as well. Um, they are finding ways to reach out to the smallest farmers first. They're leaving the, the, the bigger farms pretty much intact, but they're directing a lot of really important attention to these 2 million farmers uh, who could change their local economies, who could change their food systems. Um, I'm very concerned that some of the provisions that are in NAFTA will get in the way of that. A big premise in NAFTA and something that's specific in the text is that nothing in this agreement should distort trade. Well, a program that's, that's intended to achieve self-sufficiency in corn is going to distort trade. Um, so I think what's exciting in Mexico is, you know, they don't know how this trade agreement is going to turn out. Um, they're trying to find out more, but they are moving ahead with these plans because that's what's important is finding both farm and trade rules that can help farmers, that can help consumers. So that's what they're moving ahead with. And I wish we could get to that kind of situation here. I do, too. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you're seeing it all across the country, right? Whether it's, you know, local foods movements in grocery stores or farm to institution um, or farmer's markets. Um, people want to have access to local food. They want to have access to fresh food. They want to have access to healthy food. Uh, we have agricultural policy in the United States that disincentivizes people making, farmers, making the transition from conventional agriculture, which is currently paying below the cost of production in a bunch of different areas, to uh, production that 
actually turns a profit that's that's value added um agriculture um and that the market is really demanding you know and in some areas they they can't supply enough and well, so uh you know we'd really like to see some of those policies that they're looking at in mexico you know come to the united states and if we can get to a point of maybe the word is intersectionality maybe it's common sense but for the first time, lifespans are actually decreasing. A lot of reasons are the chronic health conditions. You talked a little bit about sugar and the way that sugar impacts the body. And and then the climate change is just such a tragic story. And so how do we help do something where, where the dominant system, the rules of the roles, are almost like stupid? <laughs> right? So, I mean... The rules of the road. How would you say that, Steve? I mean, does it does it? Do we have are the rules of the road when it comes to trade? Are they uh, do they use the unrelenting application of reason combined with a basic sense of kindness? Well, I think you know the, the uh, it, it's a testimony to the uh, very 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 minimal democracy in trade policy that uh, you know members of Congress. Uh, when they looked at the draft text, if they looked at the draft text of the new NAFTA agreement, you know, could only do so in a room that was, you know, guarded. They could not take a cell phone and they could not take in uh, advisors who could, you know, explain what they couldn't understand the text. And so, you know, essentially the, the ability of Congress to represent uh, the people who, you know, elected them is has been foreshortened. And so by trying to open up... Uh, uh, you know the trade policy discussion in general. This one, this particular agreement, uh, would be a would be a good place to start. We can, you know. Yeah. So, so unfortunately, Doctor, our last... ask some questions about what do we want in our food and agriculture system? What do we want in our rural communities? And that's a major, uh, uh, and trade policy is a major impediment to doing that. What do we want, and how do we get there? Um, so, Josh, if somebody wanted to find out more about NAFTA and go into the details, where can they get information? Well, if you go to uh, our website, www.iatp.org, you'll find IATP's uh, analysis of the new NAFTA uh, right there on the homepage. We also have a NAFTA portal that's collected uh, 25, 26 years' worth of analysis that IATP has done on NAFTA. Um, most of it is centered around food and agriculture, but we uh, branch into a number of different areas. Um, and so I would encourage uh, uh, anyone who's interested in learning more on some of these issues to go to the www.ietp.org and uh, get involved. Yeah, get involved because we can create a better food system. We can, we can. Um, and so I thank you so much, Joss Wise, um, the Director of Development and Communications, Dr. Steve Supan, a Senior Policy Analyst, and Karen Hansen Kuhn, Director of Trade and Global Governance. And I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio and um, have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you. It's pretty good over here. Woman.